Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. In keeping with the Buddha's encouragement to ensure that these teachings are freely offered to all, we do not have any set dues or fees associated with any of our classes or media. In an effort to sustain our ability to do so, we ask that you contribute via our website at againstthestreamnashville.com by clicking the Donate tab, or via the mobile app Venmo by sending a donation to the username at ATS Nashville. Enjoy. All right, tonight we're going to do four mini practices together instead of what we normally do, which is practice a 30 or 40 minute meditation at the beginning of the group. We're going to break it up into smaller meditation practices because I want to talk about the heart practices tonight which are called the Brahma Viharas and I always find it to be kind of nice if you're going to talk about the heart practices to practice them during the group so we'll do that together first I want to just take about five minutes to sit quietly together so if you just want to find a way to sit that feels comfortable We'll sit in silence, but I just want to offer one invitation or intention that you can bear in mind for these five minutes, and that is that there's nowhere to go and nothing to do, no right or wrong way to be, just to give yourself this five-minute period to sit quietly and allow your body uh, or your awareness to arrive into your body. If you want to close your eyes, you can. You can scan through your body and relax, soften the muscles, take some deep breaths, open to the sounds, nowhere to go, nothing to do, no right or wrong way to be. And this is in the Buddha's words. He says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature, Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, 
is not born again into this world. The Buddha encouraged us to develop the heart and the mind practice of meditation or the meditative discipline is really about training. And it's training in this dharma that the Buddha awoke to, which is oftentimes referred to as the middle path, the eightfold path of practice. In the middle path there are these three baskets that we're really training in. It's uh, If there was a point, the, the Eightfold Path is kind of the point of our practice. It's where we're aiming. And there are three baskets that we're really looking into. One is sila. Sila is the intention of living with integrity in our lives. And so how do we, through our speech, through our action, through our livelihood, through our engagement in the larger environment, How do we live in a way that is in line with what we value? And how do we live in line with really the principle of nonviolence? To not cause harm to ourselves and others. Sila, this training is really foundational. How do we live in the world? You know, what do we take on as our actual behaviors, as our work? How we handle money, sexuality, right? These oftentimes big ticket items where we cause and generate a lot of suffering, you know, systematic racism and difference in power structures, right? That exist in our environment and in the world. So this is really a Buddhism. The Buddha's path of practice was an engaged practice. It was holistic and comprehensive. We start with sila, looking at how we live with, with integrity, and then also the training of the heart and the mind is the second basket. They call it samadhi, which means a collectedness of mind. So what do we focus on? Really, this is training in two things, training attention and training intention. Last week, I talked about seeing clearly and responding wisely. How do we, what are we focused on you know, with our actual mental faculty of attention. What do I tend to in my daily life? What, do I, what am I focusing on? And what am I narrowing in on? And then how am I responding? What am I bringing forward? What do I do? The activity of the mind is also a behavior. So I may speak or I may do some physical action and that definitely has an impact on myself and the world. But what you do up here, we don't usually share this information a whole lot. You know, this is, but this is running around in the background throughout my entire day, mental activity. So training attention. What am I tuning into with my mental activity and how do I want to, or what do I want to cultivate? What kind of mind? In Buddhism, there's no dis- distinction between the heart and the mind, they're the same. Chitta means heart-mind. So how do we develop our emotional, our connected sense, and our mental activity all together? 
And then there's training, the development of wisdom, panya. Wisdom is the, what I call the map. So as I focus on living with integrity in the world through how I speak and act and the ways that I work, and as I start to train my attention and intention, as I start to look at my own mental activity, what happens is I become more familiar with the landscape because I'm interested in it. Buddhism is a contemplative practice, meaning to contemplate, to look at. The word for meditation in Pali Sanskrit, anupasati, means to repeatedly look at. So what we're doing is we're really looking into our direct experience over and over again for the purpose of becoming more familiar with it. Not to judge it or not to have this legalistic, they call it legalist ethics, this commandment-based law of what's righteous or wrong, what's good or bad, but instead to be able to notice what types of mental activity, what types of speech and action, behavior, consumerism, so on and so forth, lead to harm, mine and yours, and what lead to freedom, more ease, more wholeness, mine and yours. And the emphasis, the interesting thing about the Buddhist teaching is he emphasized more than anything else, really looking at our intention or our motivations behind things. And so, again, it's not as much in the result of like, what do I get the ends, right? It's more of what do I intend and am I being honest about my intentions or my motivations? The Buddha says that all experience is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind and made of the mind. If you speak or act with a corrupted mind, then suffering follows you, as the wheel of the cart does the track of the ox that pulls it. All experience is preceded by the mind, ruled by the mind, made of the mind. If you speak or act with a calm, bright mind, then happiness follows you, like a shadow that never leaves. So how do we, this is, I've been, I was kind of asking this for myself, how do I maintain an intention of living a skillful life, right? A meaningful life. How do I maintain that intention? It's really the hardest thing. I mean, I do this every week. I am a Buddhist teacher here. I'm very much engaged and enmeshed in spiritual living, whatever that means, but still, what I struggle with the most is how do I keep the steam? How do I keep looking over and over and over again? How do I continue to look at my motivations behind things when my mind is more of a rationalizing mind than anything else? In neuroscience, they say that the primary function of your most recent evolutionary brain the prefrontal cortex is to rationalize the drives of the lower brains our emotion our hunger our kind of craving brains and so we have a rationalizing mind how do we keep the steam and looking internally and saying oh what is my intention here what's my motivation what do i want to bring forward So really, I think the first starting point, and I've been talking about this a lot lately, is what I call the F word, faith. Faith. <laughs> Why do we do anything? 
right? Sometimes we develop faith out of desperation, which has been my case, which is, well, nothing else works, so I'll try something else. Um, and that is common, and that's very valuable. But how do we maintain faith? How do we keep, why do we keep coming? Why do we keep looking? Why are we interested? Why do we seek anything more than just, you know, the day-to-day, wake up, go to the job, make a living? I think because we have a natural drive as human beings to live with meaning and that we have a natural innate desire for things like compassion, empathy, that we care about each other. And that the only things that the only reason why we don't or why we misstep is out of, as the Buddha says, greed, hatred, and delusion, possessiveness, fear of running out, hatred, fear of threatened, being threatened, or delusion, a sense of feeling separate from, not belonging to. So there are two forms of intention we really want to look at. Is like when we're looking at our motivations, what we do with our mind. This comes in two forms. One is abandoning, which is how do we let go of perceptions that we have about things that aren't serving us? How do we let go of behaviors that aren't serving us? How do we let go of relationship patterns or everything's a relationship anyway? How we relate to things that aren't serving us. So that's what I call the abandoning intention. And then there's the cultivating. How do we or what do we want to focus on developing, bringing forward? And these things work both side by side. I like looking at it as clearing out a path. The middle path is like You know, to some extent, it's about forging through the wilderness and cutting the shit out of the path, you know, and hauling the shit out of the path and putting it aside. Is to some extent, what we're really looking at doing is getting rid of all of the obstacles, the things that get in our way. And of course, the challenge is, is that obstacles oftentimes wear different clothing. They look not like obstacles, right? They look like what feels good or what's comfortable or what is familiar. So looking in, looking into our lives, this contemplative practice, repeatedly looking at our behavior, our relationships, our jobs, our own mental activity, and learning to let go of those types of habits or behaviors that don't serve us, clearing out the path. And I'll say this too, just as a general, almost a theological overview of my opinion, is that death is a naturally occurring process of life. And I think that awakening, therefore, needs to kind of mirror this, is we need to learn to let go. We need to learn how to lose. Not loss in the sense of win or lose, but in the sense of to be able to let things die, a natural death to let go. And this is something that I reflect a lot on during the winter time is I really feel like for me, I come out of the winter a lot of times of like letting things, parts of myself die, 
it's a very introverted season. You know, it's a, we don't see each other. We're not all, well, I don't know, maybe you have a different <laughs> experience, but, you know, smiling faces, everyone looking up at the sky, playing in the park, you know, uh, to some extent that's dampered. So having this ability, I feel like, is su- such an important part of the process or practice of awakening, letting go, clearing out the path. And then the trek. The trek is, I think, equally as difficult and difficult in different ways, which is how do we endure as we're clearing out the path, you're also moving forward. And so you've got to bring resources. You have to bring water, food, a tent, whatever you bring on a trek. You have to carry that stuff with you. And you only want to carry what's essential for the trek, And so, again, there's the kind of letting go and the taking forward. And these Brahma Viharas, these heart practices that I want to do together tonight are really what we bring forward. They're the qualities of the heart that we're cultivating. So as we let go, this is really the part of our own emotional, psychological being that we want to recognize and learn to respond with. They're not out of the ordinary. I feel like these four qualities are, most of us probably can get behind to some extent. And the the four, I'll just say to run through them, are metta, which means kindness or goodwill. Karuna, which means compassion, which also includes things like forgiveness. And then there's mudita, which is appreciative joy or sympathetic joy or non-attached appreciation, gratitude, all of those things go with that. And then there's this fourth, I always call it the word of the day if you're new, is equanimity. It's the word of the day because we don't use this word usually outside of Buddhism that much. Uh, Equanimity means even-mindedness or it's a balanced quality. The first practice I want to do together, I want to share a little bit about it and practice just for about five minutes to exercise this muscle, is metta. Metta is the basis of all of the heart practices, kindness or goodwill. It's a kind and friendly quality of heart and mind that's aimed towards meaning all of life's experiences and circumstances. So the Buddha really said that this quality of kindness is appropriate in all experiences and conditions. That it's never, we never need to be careful about how much kindness that we lead with. Now, the difficulty, of course, is discerning the difference between things like niceness and kindness. Right? There's like social niceness, which is oftentimes can be kind and oftentimes can be codependent or it can be avoidant or it can be uh, a form of attachment. So what type of kindness metta is really depends upon, again, our intention and looking at you know, and almost using this as a reflective practice. The quality of metta is born out of our deepest human desire for safety, happiness, and well-being. All beings, all sentient beings, all beings really, walking beings, uh, slithering beings, they desire safety. 
If you go to kill a spider, what it does is it will scrunch up or it will run quicker when it sees your hand moving over the, its body because it has a sense it has a life. All beings have a sense that they have a life and all beings want to live. And so really what we're doing when we practice metta is nothing more than tapping into or touching into this quality of goodwill, that I want to be well. That's a simple way to put that. I want to be well. You want to be well. This is a traditional antidote. The Buddha taught metta as an antidote for fear and anxiety. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people come to meditation groups. It's fear and anxiety to help us to feel more safe by training your mind to recognize and to respond with this quality helps your nervous system, helps your whole being to relax, to calm down. In life, of course, there's no guarantee for safety. We know that. So it's not about believing in. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, Ajahn Sumedho says that the path of the Buddha is not to follow the heart, but to train the heart. So it doesn't matter if you believe in that you're safe or that, you're, or that you feel easeful right now. It doesn't matter. It's just about really trying to get in tune with that deepest intention and to let your heart resonate with it, to sit with that. And so how do you do it? You do, you practice metta. First of, first of all, it happens naturally. It's the feeling that I get if I see kids playing, you know, just that natural lightness or innocence, especially if I hear kids laughing, you know, if they're like using their imagination and they're really laughing about something and it's very innocent, uh, that naturally, that feeling naturally arises. Metta is just as much a view as it is a feeling. So on one hand, yes, this can be a spontaneous feeling of lightheartedness that will arise more often the more that we practice it. Behavioral psychology, they say whatever you practice, you get better at. You practice a sport, you get better at it. Language, you get better at it. You also can practice developing healthy emotions. You do this by helping your mind recognize healthy emotions and practicing them. And when you recognize them, then your brain starts to, your brain, your whole System, I don't know how it works, starts to reproduce that or create that or mirror that emotional practice. So it can be a spontaneous feeling, but it's also a view, meaning that it's just something we want to get behind. It doesn't matter if it's realistic or not. So that part of the cynical mind that may come in during the meta practice and say, this is bullshit. Why am I sitting here saying, may I be at ease? Or why am I really trying to offer this? It's not going to happen. I've never felt this in my life. I don't connect to this. That's all just cynicism. You can recognize that as cynical mind and offer that part of your mind the metaphrases. May you be at ease, cynical mind. May you be at peace, cynical mind. You know, it's a good way to just practice training in this view. Again, the path is not to follow the hearts, to train the heart. How we do it is we sit and we practice when we are 
Obviously, in our normal life, this may naturally arise, but we also want to sit and practice these heart practices as a meditative discipline. And what I do is I usually encourage people to practice mindfulness one day, and then the next day do the heart practices. And then the following day you do mindfulness, and the next day you do the heart practices, and you alternate days. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to focus on these heart practices. I want to just do little bits talk a little bit about the rest of the heart practices and do, you know, five to ten minutes somewhere in there of each of them. What you do is you can really practice these in any form. There's no book on the best way to practice the heart practices, but there are some commentaries that came out of early Buddhism that I think are very helpful. And the first is that you use phrases and or visual images. Uh, You use phrases because we often have the inner voice running in the background throughout the day. You talk to yourself anyway, so changing the tone of the voice is kind of a good practice, meaning we sit here and we say to ourselves silently things like, may I be at ease. So as I'm sitting, I'm breathing, I just repeat that to myself, may I be at ease, may I be at ease, may I be at ease. And then we may use a few different phrases. May I be at peace? May I be at peace? May I be happy? May I be happy? May I be free? Over time, the words develop meaning. We sometimes have this flipped perspective, which is we think we have to buy into it in the front end. So it's like, may I be happy? I don't know what that means. Well, you'll know what it means over time as you practice saying it to yourself over and over and over again. You'll start to look for it. What does happiness mean for you? If it's a daily practice, you start looking for it more, right? And it's important to think about things like that. If I want in my life to be happy, I've got to kind of kick around that idea (laughs) of what is happiness and do I want to focus on that and what does that look like for me? So as you say, may I be happy, it will start to take on a felt meaning over time. I can now practice these phrases, my phrases that I use, and, I, and they resonate with me actually often, not all the time, but I will often have a connected practice. Sometimes you have a dry practice where you just say them out of rote habit, which is good, and sometimes you have a connected practice, which is also good. That's what we'll do is we say these phrases. Some people will use visual images. Sometimes you practice with different categories, like sometimes you'll start with someone that's easy. Like if my grandma was to walk in the room right now, I would naturally feel a little bit lighter. I would be happy to see her. I feel no judgment around her. I feel easeful. And so maybe sometimes I'll sit and I'll practice the phrases to my grandmother. I'll just kind of visualize her face or what she looks like sitting in front of me and I'll offer the phrases. And then I'll sometimes turn it back to myself. May I be at ease. I'll use the phrases to myself. And then there's different categories, like a neutral person, a difficult person, and you can expand this to all beings. For the purpose of simplicity, what we're going to do is we're going to just do a five-minute practice of metta, or this intention, development of this intention of goodwill to ourselves. And what we'll do is I'll say the phrases, I'll guide the meditation, and after I say each phrase, try it on, like a pair of clothes you're trying on, in a store, just say the phrase and almost imagine or try to connect with the phrase as you say it. So you'll repeat it back to yourself. 
If you want to find a way to sit just for a few minutes to gently allow your eyes to close if it feels comfortable. Scanning through your body, letting go of any tension or tightness. Just relaxing, softening the body. Maybe even offering this intention a couple times, nowhere to go, nothing to do. No right or wrong way to be. Just breathing that in, breathing that out. Bringing your awareness into the emotional center of the body, just feeling into the front of your body, around the center of the heart. This is the part of the body where you feel and experience fear and anxiety. Just for a moment, imagining that feeling. What is it like to feel afraid or anxious in your body? Breathing right down into that place. Feeling the rise and fall of your chest with each in and out breath. And for the next few minutes, we'll silently reflect, offering yourself these phrases as I say them out loud, repeating silently to yourself. May I be at ease. May I be at ease. May I be at peace. May I be at peace. May I be kind and gentle with myself. May I be kind and gentle with myself. And may I be free. May I be free.
Just breathing in and breathing out, offering these phrases. May I be at ease. May I be at ease. May I be at peace. Breathing that in and breathing that out. May I be at peace. May I be kind and gentle with myself. May I be kind and gentle with myself. And may I be free. May I be free. Just continuing with whatever phrases or form of the practice that feels most useful. We'll sit in silence for these last couple minutes. If it helps, you can bring to mind an image of yourself as a child or just a sense of your own deepest desire for safety, for ease, for well-being. One more time, connecting with each of the phrases. May I be at ease. May I be at peace. May I be kind and gentle with myself.
may I be free. Just take a moment. We'll have more time for discussion at the end, but if just if anyone wants to share about their experience or the practice, questions, comments, thoughts for a little bit. It's a wonderful question. I do have some opinions, both pros and cons. Uh, the benefit, I think, of using visualization is that our visual field is our most predominant sense, other than in Buddhist psychology, they include thinking as kind of a sense. But out of our five senses that we learn in kindergarten, the <laughs> The, visu the visual field is our most predominant. And so when you visualize, there's kind of this visual memory or this almost imaginative interaction between the mind and your visual sense. So it can be a very great resource for concentration, for helping you focus. And these heart practices are helping not only to develop the quality, but also to help with our focus, focusing on the quality. So using visualization helps to focus on the quality. And I would say that that's the greatest benefit of using visualization. The one issue that may arise is that, well, a couple opinions I have is one, I think it's always a good idea to get body focused. And so visual, kind of this mental visualization can oftentimes, have us leave our connection with our physical sense or the felt sense of what the quality of metta may feel like internally. So that's, I think, one of the downfalls. And the other is, is that it's much harder to conjure up a visual. We can become dependent upon the visual object. Like it, we make it to be really important a lot of the time. When, especially in Theravada Buddhist types of meditation, the visual object is not important. It's just thinking, but it's thinking to help you connect. So we can sometimes really have this visual image. It's like the right one, and I always try to get there, or whatever. And the same can be said for the phrases, too. You use a phrase, you use a phrase, you can become a little bit, like, dependent. And... Uh, so I would just say, you know, to weigh those things out. It can be a helpful tool. It can also be a hindrance, just like anything else. Um, but, it's a, yeah, it's a really good question. Thanks for bringing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
The second quality that I want to, I'm going to talk about the second and the third kind of together. Compassion and appreciation. They really arise from this primary intention that deep down all human beings want safety and well-being. And so how do we live in the world and how do we develop ease and well-being? And the understanding, which is equanimity, from the Buddhist perspective, is that our happiness or our ease, our well-being, is really dependent upon how we relate to our present circumstances and conditions, not the circumstances and conditions themselves. Does that make sense? So it's not about what I'm experiencing. It's about how I am tending to what I'm experiencing. And so what normally happens is when we're in pain, because we're focusing really on doing these practices for ourselves tonight, when we're in pain or discomfort, we hate, we agonize over, and we preemptively try to get out of any form of discomfort and pain. But the problem is, is that life inherently signs us up for discomfort and pain. So the Buddha kind of is a strategist, really, more than anything else, and almost an economist. He's like, well, if life is uncomfortable a lot of the time, the best strategy is to not get rid of discomfort, but to become more equipped with meeting discomfort and pain. And compassion, empathy, caring about, opening to our pain, experiencing it, holding it, and caring about it, is a healthy response to pain. Wishing to be free from the pain, but knowing that we don't always have that ability. Right? So we still want for ourselves and others to be free from suffering in this world. That's a very important intention. Knowing that a lot of us are suffering a lot of the times. And so how do we meet and hold and care for ourselves and others when we are experiencing pain or discomfort? And then appreciation. Appreciation is... The ability to delight in, to actually have the capacity to experience pleasure, to enjoy and to almost have a sense of enthusiasm around the things in our lives that are pleasurable without digging our claws into them or without always having to have everything be pleasurable all of the time, which our culture and society just got a silver platter of all the fucking wonderful, pleasurable experiences we could have at our fingertips. And so we, a part of this, again, is the importance of what the Buddha talked a lot about of like sense restraint around pleasure, which is... Not to say that we need to deny ourselves pleasure, but to just be a little bit careful, especially in a day and age when all of this is just, I mean, I can have the food delivered, I can have the TV delivered, I can have everything delivered to my doorstep. You know, pleasure is just being invited in. But then the other side, the flip side of this coin is that oftentimes because our pleasure is temporary, we can develop a cynical attitude towards comfort and pleasure. We can almost have this sense of, or sometimes lack the capacity to experience joy. Uh, I told a story several weeks ago when I was looking for houses. My wife and I were looking for houses, and we put an offer in on the perfect house. And that same night, we found out they had four offers on the same house. And... 
my wife and I were talking and, and she did what I usually would do and she was like, we shouldn't get our hopes up because there are four offers in it. and that's totally something that I would have said and I told her, no, we should totally, like right now, we should totally enjoy the possibility of having this house because it may, may or may not happen, right? And so having the capacity to delight in even temporary pleasure, it's important. And then I told her, and then when we don't get it, if we don't get it, we'll be disappointed when we're disappointed. And so that's really it, is the wise response is, can I enjoy when there are enjoyable experiences to be had, you know, that are done. It's important with the Buddhist lens. It's not pleasurable experiences that are done out of ill will or out of possessiveness or out of this delusion of separation, oppression, so on and so forth, all the systems that kind of evolve. It's not pleasure to be had out of that type of experience, but it's just this kind of skillful a uh, simple type of enjoyment. What I want to do is to do five to ten minute practice on these two qualities. We'll do the compassion practice and we'll break for a minute in the meditation and then we'll bring in the practice of appreciative joy. So just find a way to sit that feels comfortable. And again, tonight we'll be emphasizing this practice towards ourselves. Just closing the eyes, relaxing into the body. Perhaps the mind has already wandered into the activities for later tonight or this week. And that's okay. Just bringing your attention, dropping your attention back down into the body, softening, relaxing. Taking a couple deep breaths in and out. Just feeling into the emotional center of the body around the center of the chest. bringing to mind the challenges of your life recently, this past week or this past month. What's been hard? Maybe it's something that's been on your mind or an experience that you had. Even the mundane stress of daily living. Taking some time to actually bring that into the mind and into the body. Reflecting. As you reflect, silently repeating this phrase to yourself, may I learn to care for all of the suffering and confusion in my life. May I learn to care for all of the stress, the suffering, and the confusion in my life.
and offering the phrase, may I learn to meet the pain and suffering in my life with mercy and empathy. May I learn to meet the suffering and the confusion in my life with mercy and with empathy. And may I know that caring is enough. May I know that caring is already enough. Breathing in and out of the heart center. Just bringing to mind some of the stress in your life, the challenging parts of your life here recently. Even the minor irritations. May I learn to care for all of the stress, the suffering and the confusion in my life. to care for all of the stress, the suffering, and the confusion in my life. And may I learn to meet all of the pain in my life with mercy and empathy. to meet any of the challenges in my life with mercy and with empathy. And may I know that caring is enough. May I know that caring is already enough. For a few moments, just offering yourself some compassion, some caring. Sometimes I like to repeat the phrase, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going. Just taking this time for a couple moments to offer this compassionate and empathetic response.
there's any discomfort in the body or your mind or your emotional heart in this present moment offering to include this discomfort of body or mind in this intention. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. I care about you. I forgive you. And taking a moment to just let go of any phrases and check into the body, scanning from the top of your head down through the body, softening, relaxing, releasing any tension or tightness. And embracing the other side of this dichotomy in life, that life is equally tragic and beautiful, taking a moment to reflect on all of the beautiful aspects of your life, the friends, the family, imagining people's faces, loved ones, perhaps new beginnings, jobs, new living situations, circumstances. And silently offering, may I learn to appreciate all that is good in my life. May I learn to appreciate all that is good in my life. May the goodness in my life continue to grow. May the goodness in my life continue to grow. And may I learn to open to my experience in kindness and in gratitude. Just seeing if you can open to this intention. May I learn to open to my life in kindness and in gratitude. Just taking a few moments now to appreciate and to delight in the pleasant qualities or the beautiful qualities of your life. 
Sometimes I like to repeat the phrase, I appreciate you, thank you. I appreciate you, thank you, for whatever comes to mind. Just letting go of any of the phrases and checking into your body, into your mind. Just any part of your present experience that is good enough, that feels okay. Seeing if you can connect with the mind and the body that is good enough. I appreciate you, thank you. Just taking a moment to feel whatever about your present experience is good or good enough. Just take a moment to open it up for just this section, this practice of compassion, appreciation, the gratitude practice, and the compassion practice together. What came up for you or questions, comments, thoughts you may have. We'll have, again, more discussion here in a few minutes, but I just want to open it up. How was it? struggling with is not having answers at the moment and being a little uh, hard on myself for that. Like I'm showing myself compassion for other things, but that confusion piece, I really appreciated taking a, a look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, my teacher um, helped me with these phrases when I first started practicing, that was his words. And I also feel like we have a hard time, by its very nature, confusion is hard to spot. It's like, you know, that feeling of uncertainty or just like not knowing or, and a lot of times the suffering that I do, especially these days, that I do inflict on myself and others is out of confusion, out of not knowing. Um, so yeah, I also like that because it's this whole other 
almost more mysterious world of yeah, <laughs> of of suffering. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So the last quality that I want to speak briefly about is the quality of equanimity. Equanimity is the balancing factor of these heart practices. So really it's what keeps metta and karuna and mudita, kindness, compassion and appreciation in line with the understanding that all of us, despite our wishes, for kindness and for compassion to meet pain and for appreciation to meet pleasure and beauty in our lives. Despite our wishes, our happiness is born out of our actions, not our wishes. That our happiness is dependent upon how we relate to our circumstances and what we do, not in what we want. Right? And so if we sit and we practice caring, compassion for some painful experience in our life, it doesn't mean that the painful experience in our life is going to morph and change. It may, through doing the practice, our relationship may show, our relationship to that painful experience may change and therefore the experience may change. But it's not this magical thinking. The Buddha really was clear that he says beings are the owners of their actions and the heirs to their actions and they spring from their actions. And whatever you do, including through your mental activity, and any action that you take, we fall heir to those uh, consequences. And so there are the skillful consequences of acting in ways that we're intentional about and that grow beautiful fruit. And then there are the ways that we aren't as conscious of or tending to that grow shitty fruit. And that we can sit and practice the heart practices all day, but what we plant and what we sow, that's what we're going to grow. And equanimity is this balancing factor and it keeps us in line. And so really it's that when we show up in life, and this is the, the, my favorite thing about talking about the heart practices is inevitably especially when I teach the heart practices, I get people's feedback. And I myself have had this type of wondering of like, well, for example, in a relationship, romantic relationship, should I stay in the relationship? Is that the compassionate thing to do? Or should I leave the relationship? Is that the compassionate thing to do? And so the aim here is really to understand that our compassion and appreciation are all situational, right? And that these situations as we move through our life it's really about bringing our awareness into all aspects of our life not leaving anything out and asking ourselves the question what's the compassionate action what's the compassionate thing to do right now and to just be interested in that and the buddha from this buddhist kind of perspective is is that if we are radically honest and we bring this intention forward into each moments of experience that, that is the, those are the seeds of awakening. Right? Even if we plant some bad seeds, if we're radically honest and we're really interested and we're bringing forward these qualities, knowing that our happiness is dependent upon what I'm planning, that my actions are the most important thing, 
that that's when we grow the seeds of awakening, right? And so equanimity has these kind of two parts. One is this personal responsibility. This is the view. All of us have to do the work. All of us have to show up for our lives. Each one of us needs to do what needs to be done to free ourselves from suffering in this world. You could say the theological salvation model of Buddhism is that each one of us has to save ourselves. We have to do the work. We have to dig ourselves out of the ditch. We do it with support, and we do it with sangha, with practice, and with principle, all of these things. But we've got to put in the action. We can't just be sitting around thinking, well, I like the idea of compassion. That sounds great. You know, but we have to really be interested in that and bring that forward. That's the personal responsibility view of equanimity. And then the other part of equanimity is the capacity to recognize when a situation is in need of compassion, when a situation is in need of what type of compassion. For example, if someone's hurt you, is it wise to reconcile and to go to the person and to say, hey, you know, I feel like I need to talk about this or if I hurt someone to reconcile or is it important to not let the person or they say to let the person back into your heart without letting them back into your home? Like, oh, I'm going to have to reconcile this shit on my own because every time I go back, I get burned and that's not, that's not compassionate for myself or the other being. These things are very complex. So equanimity is just that the more we stay interested the more we have access to the wise response. The more we know for ourselves, oh, this is the compassionate thing. And so I just want to do a very brief practice to get a structure for equanimity together, about five minutes or so. And equanimity joins these, all of these heart practices in one. Find a way to sit that feels comfortable. Just seeing if you can stay with stay with your present experience, however it is. If it's uncomfortable, if there's irritability in the body or the mind, if you feel tired, if you feel restless, if you feel easeful, just being willing to check in for a moment, just to hang in there. And the first part of this practice is just about feeling into and knowing or recognizing whatever you're experiencing, whatever's predominant in your present experience. Just feeling into and knowing if your mind's tired or restless, if the mind's neutral, calm. And feeling into and knowing what it feels like in your body. And so we'll start just by repeating silently these two phrases, I feel you, I know you. Slowly over a period of time, every once in a while, dropping in the phrase, I feel you, I know you. 
into the mind. I feel you and I know you. Into the body, I feel you, I know you. I feel you, I know you, and then I care about you. I feel you, I know you, I care about you. Anything that's predominant, anything that comes up, it could be a feeling in the body or a mental thought, some random daydream. I feel you, I know you, I care about you. feel you, I know you, I care about you, and I appreciate you. Whatever comes up, I feel you, I know you, I care about you, I appreciate you. I feel you, I know you, I care about you, and I appreciate you. And I understand that my happiness depends upon how I relate to this experience, and not the experience itself. Just letting that phrase land as you sit quietly. I understand that my happiness depends upon how I relate to this experience right here and not the experience itself. Just feeling and knowing your experience. I feel you, I know you. And then relating to your experience. I care about you, or I appreciate you, or I forgive you, or I love you. Just seeing what the wise response is as we sit quietly for these last couple moments. 